0: Hi guys, welcome to another Monday Night Study. Tonight, what I wanted to do is go through um, the Bible and some of the Jewish uh, texts that talk about the red heifer. You may have noticed this last week, uh, there's uh, some excitement with getting, uh, I believe it was five or more, a group of red heifers uh, delivered to Israel from Texas. And everyone's excited, other people have been asking What's the big deal with it? Because I thought we already had them or why do we need more, et cetera. And basically the answer is um, when it's time to sacrifice a red heifer, it has to be a certain age without blemishes, et cetera. So it can never be uh, ridden. Uh, It can't have any cuts, any hairs that are one way or the other. And as you know, we're born with a certain color hair. As we get older, sometimes spots come or hair color changes. I don't know if it's the same with cows, but basically there's just a certain time uh, and they have to be absolutely perfect. So right now, there is no way to sacrifice the red heifer. So what we want to make sure that happens, if you had a herd of red heifers, then any particular year, you could probably guarantee a perfect sacrifice. And so that's basically what they're trying to do. So we wanted to kind of look at this and kind of see how it works a little bit. And so I wanted to pull up, this is uh, my book, Ancient Messianic Festivals. uh, And we talk a lot about the the different prophecies. And so we've got spring festivals, fall festivals, other ceremonies, and then things related to the tribulation period, that kind of stuff. Under other, other prophecies, we have Hanukkah, New Moon Festivals, Ninth of Av, Purim, Red Heifer, and the Wedding Ceremony, how that kind of fits together. So if we go to the Red Heifer section, uh, so we want to look at the Paraduma, and basically the ritual uh, consists of sacrificing a red cow, a heifer. And so here it is. The basic information is from Numbers chapter 19, the first nine verses. And we'll just read this here. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, This is the ordinance of the law which the Lord has commanded, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they bring thee a red heifer without spot, wherein there is no blemish, and upon which never came a yoke. You shall give her to Eliezer the priest, that he may bring her forth without the camp, and one shall slay her before his face. So he's taking her out. Now, later on, we find out this is outside the camp. It's actually on the Mount of Olives where this should take place. And it's really cool because it's in a place where you can uh, look over the valley, straight through the Eastern Gate or over the Eastern Gate into the temple according to Josephus and several other places. This kind of helps us determine where the temple was also. Um, Because there's only a certain number of places you could have it on the Mount of Olives. And any of those places going through the Eastern Gate would be right where the temple would be, just somewhere right here. So it couldn't be way off somewhere else. So anyway, but this is a symbol, of course, for Christ. And we're going to see a couple of things with it. But so far, far it's supposed to be a red heifer uh, without spot or blemish. And the rabbis interpret that as not having any hairs, spots, white or black. It's supposed to be perfectly red. And he gives her to Eliezer, the priest, takes her outside of the camp over to the Mount of Olives. And one person, one of the priests, will slay her before his face. So he's actually observing the ceremony, making sure it's done right as high priest. Someone else kills her. Uh, Then Eliezer the priest will take of her, of her blood rather, with his finger and sprinkle uh, of her blood directly before the tabernacle of the congregation seven times. Now this is back when they had a tabernacle before the temple. When the temple was created, uh, it's the same basic idea, but it's um, on the um, Mount of Olives. Now between the Mount of Olives and the Eastern Gate, there is a cemetery and this has to be clean. If if the cow was to walk through a cemetery or anything along those lines, it would become ceremonially unclean. So you can't do that except you have to kind of do that. So they build a special ramp between the Mount of Olives and the Eastern Gate for this particular purpose. So again, looking at all those facts, we should be able to determine approximately where the temple would be. Um, Let's see here. (laughs) Okay, so uh, he sprinkles the blood seven times toward the congregation. And when there's a temple, it will be toward the temple. One, one of the priests, shall burn the heifer in his sight. Uh, Her skin, her flesh, her blood with her dung, shall be burnt. So it's a whole burnt offering. In other words, it's not like some of the offerings where you get a steak or some other part of the animal to eat uh, for one of the festivals, and the priests don't use it for any food. This is a whole burnt offering. Um, Let's see here. And the priest shall take cedar wood, hyssop, and scarlet, cast it into the midst of the burning of the heifer, and then the priest will wash his clothes, and bathe in his flesh in water, and afterwards he will be he will come into the camp. And the priest shall be unclean until the even. And this is a, a standard thing when you enter something that's unclean. Uh, on a practical side, um, staying away from people until that evening is a pretty good indication that you didn't catch anything, any kind of disease. We see the same kind of stuff in numbers when it talks about um, you're not supposed to eat anything with the blood in it. You're supposed to kill it, bleed it, cook it properly. But if you're out in the wilderness, for instance, and you're starving to death, and you find something that an animal killed, basically roadkill, and you take it and you cook it and you eat it, it's a situation where if you eat it, you might catch something and die. But if you don't eat it, you will die if you're starving. So in a situation like that, you go ahead and do the best you can with it and then uh, bathe, you know, get any kind of disease that might be off of you. And then if the evening comes and you're still perfectly fine, then you're fine. Uh, If you get food poisoning, it's usually within an hour or two or maybe not even that long. I don't think there's any case of food poisoning where you can uh, eat the thing and then a day or two later, you know, start having symptoms. So one of those things, but this is a uh, standard throughout all of this. Incidentally, we have uh, groups like Jehovah Witnesses today who would say we refuse to eat blood in any way, shape or form. And because of that, they let their children die if their children need a blood transfusion. So it's a horrible misunderstanding uh, of that passage. And when the passage says, if it's a life threatening issue, you go ahead and eat it and then hopefully suffer no consequences and the punishment is that you have to take a bath and wait until the evening and see if you're okay. But anyway, this is the same thing. In this case though, it's more ceremonial because it's supposed to be a sacrifice of sin and there's some cleanness and some uncleanness to it. So if you're handling handling the ashes uh, or that kind of stuff, you make yourself unclean so that you have to go through the normal ritual. But notice it's cedar wood, hyssop, and scarlet. Of course, now scarlet thread represents uh, sin. And you'll remember the um, sacrifice for the Azazel goat, or the scapegoat. Uh, That goat is taken outside the city, and a scarlet thread is tied around one of its uh, horns. And when it's thrown off the cliff, if the sacrifice is pleasing to God, uh, anciently they said the scarlet thread would turn white. And then there were other miracles that happened. On Yom Kippur if everything was done correctly. So in this case, the cedar wood and the hyssop, we're not absolutely sure what they represent, but it should be something interesting to go through and study. Um, I would like to see all of the rituals like this in printed form if possible. Many of you know that when you look at a uh, Seder, Passover Seder, you can see the Messiah all through it, his death, burial, his resurrection. Um, the coming of the Holy Spirit, all that kind of stuff is in the ritual. So if we had the rituals for all of those festivals, it would be pretty amazing. So, But this is what we have from the Bible from for the red heifer. So cedar, wood, hyssop, and scarlet, all together, the whole animal, whole burnt offering completely burned up. Then it says, the priest shall wash his clothes, bathe his flesh in water, and afterwards, he will come into the camp, and the priest shall be unclean until that evening. He that bear, burns her shall wash his clothes in water, bathe his flesh in water, and shall be unclean until the evening. So, the priest that actually sacrifices, and, uh, and the uh, priest that actually um, let's see here does the ritual for the with the wood and everything. Okay. So, and then it says, uh, and a man that is clean. So this is a third person. So you've got the, the high priest and the got the two people doing the sacrifices, but there's another man then that is, is clean. So it actually takes three people, three priests. I always think that's interesting when you see a, a group of three, uh, some sort of a, a, an idea or a reflection of the Trinity in this. So the sacrifice is being made by three parties and being observed by one. Anyway, a man that is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and lay them up without the camp or outside the camp in a clean place. And it shall be kept for the congregation of the children of Israel for the water of separation. It is a purification for sin. Now, many of us remember uh, the the incident in John chapter two, and this is when uh, Jesus uh, turns the water into wine. And there's several things about that. Let me keep, keep this here. We'll come right back to it. But let me show you John chapter two. John is in the New Testament. So let's see here. Okay. So here's the wedding at Cana. And there's several things we can look at this, but it says, on the third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. What's interesting about this is, again, we go back to the, the Essene calendar. The, on this first verse, this whole idea of the third day, that's supposed to tell us something. Well, anciently, um, well, today, for instance, in America, we have a kind of a, a tradition uh, loosely done. When you get married, there's usually a June wedding. You know, and there's, there's all sorts of little traditions, the white and the, the something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue, all those kind of things. Now, those are kind of made up as we go along, but we have this kind of a concept of a June wedding. Well, anciently, uh, there, it was connected with the festival of new wine, uh, certain uh, things that you could do with a wedding that you couldn't do other times. And the festival of new wine is on the third of Av, according to the Dead Sea Scrolls. So what's really interesting to me is on the festival of new wine, when a lot of people would get married, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee on the third day. That's got to be what we're talking about. And Jesus ends up turning the water into wine on the festival of new wine. So there's a lot of information there that they knew instinctively what this meant. We don't know a whole lot of the festival of new wine, or we could probably tell you exactly why he turned water into wine specifically. Now, they needed it. They ran out of wine. And you need wine for uh, communion, for other rituals and for weddings. And they shouldn't have ran out of it. But drunkenness is a sin, but drinking wine is not. It's commanded according to some of these rituals. We don't have to do them because we're not Jewish, but we have to understand what they are to get the whole picture, especially if it has something to do with prophecy. So he's in, a, in on the third day, he's at on the festival of new wine, which is always on a Sunday. So it's a Sunday wedding. It's a wedding in Cana of Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there and it goes on down and she said, uh, Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said to them, they have no wine. They ran out. So Jesus said to her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? My hour is not yet come. His mother told the servants, Whatever he says, do it. So I think this is pretty cool. He's like, It's not yet my time. I really shouldn't be doing anything yet. And then mom just says, Uh huh. Whatever he says, do it. It's kind of an interesting relationship, mother and son. But anyway, so she says this. And now notice this next verse, uh, six. There were six, there were set there, six water pots of stone. Not just any stone water pot, but it says it was after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three uh, firkins apiece. So these are water pots, not just for water or water for drinking, but these are water pots that you would use, to ritually clean things with water that has been purified. Now we'll see later and what we did see right there, the ashes of the red heifer, a small amount of the ashes are sprinkled into on a certain festival onto uh, water and this water becomes holy water or water that's used in a temple for ritual cleaning. So if these pots, these stone pots were made after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, and they contain the holy water. Okay, So in other words, and the holy water is made with water and the ashes of the red heifer. There's other rituals where they combine wine and water. Uh, And so that's there's a lot of rituals. Again, I wish we had the full text of what they did with it, what they said, what scriptures they quoted during the ritual. And we have some of that, but we need a, a little bit more. But anyway, it goes on. So these six water pots were purification. So then he says, take the water pots. They were empty, but they were that kind of water pot. Fill them with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, draw out and bear it to the governor of the feast, and they bear it. The ruler of the feast tasted the water that was then wine, Um, and he knew not whence it was, both servants drew uh, the water, they knew. And the governor of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, every man begins in the beginning, does set forth the good wine. And after men have well drunk, then that which is worst, but you have kept the good wine until now. And then the rest of the story about the festivals going on. So in other words, normally you set out the really good stuff, uh, and then when people are eat, and they've eaten, and they've drunk, and if they want a little more food, or a little more wine, or whatever, and and you have the cheap stuff left over, there's a good chance people won't notice that you've went from the really expensive stuff to the cheap stuff. So in this, we're seeing Jesus turns water into wine, not just any cheap kind of you know, thing, but the really, really good stuff, the way it was done. I don't know how they did it, special spices or whatever, uh, but it was the really, really good stuff. But you can see this now, if in the ritual, you take the ashes from the red heifer and sprinkle them on the water and the water becomes holy water, which can cleanse, then at this wedding, which is the, the, the wedding, which is on the feast of wine, Uh, Jesus, by himself, he doesn't take any ashes or anything. By himself, he simply changes water to wine. Not just any wine, but the really good stuff. So what we're seeing here is a missing ingredient, which is the ashes of the red heifer, which obviously points to Jesus the Messiah, or he wouldn't have been able to do it. So in other words, this particular place shows that he is The red heifer. So whatever the red heifer is supposed to be, whatever it's supposed to be, how it's supposed to work somehow points to Christ. Now we know all the rituals point to Christ, but it's just interesting to kind of see this. So these are the waters for the purification. Okay, and so back down here, notice this again, it ends by saying uh, the man takes the ashes of the red heifer lays them without the camp out in a special place, in a clean place, so they can't be contaminated, uh, ritually anyway. And it shall be kept for the congregation of the children of Israel, for a water of separation. This is purification for sin. So, and in other words, it's the water of purification. So we tie those together, and you, you know that the ashes of the red heifer are used for ceremonial cleansing of sin. The Messiah is our salvation and he cleanses us of sin. But let's go ahead. That's what we know from the scriptures. Let's go ahead and add some of the stuff from the Jews. Now, I've come to realize that a lot of the stuff in the Talmud, the traditions are probably accurate. Some of it is not, especially with the fact that it's written by people who rejected the Messiah. So you got to give it, take it with some grain of salt. Since we've got the Dead Sea Scrolls now, we can corroborate some of those things are absolutely right uh, as far as what the Essenes taught and what Pharisees and Sadducees taught. They all believe the same thing on certain issues. But then if you're following the Dead Sea Scrolls, you'll see that certain things are absolutely wrong. So that makes me even more than I used to be a little suspect of the uh, Talmud. But it's still something that we go to when we don't have any other information to see if we can figure something out. And then if you use the church fathers on how they interpret it, sometimes they'll have a slightly different interpretation or tell you it was done almost the same way, but slightly different, which might just be the way they did it in their time. Or maybe that's the key to a prophecy. So that's why we want to pull all these together. So that's Numbers chapter nineteen. Okay, so now here are the details of the ritual given in the Mishnah, uh, Parah Adama. So the red heifer. Uh, it's in in chapter three of Parah Adama. Um, so the Mishnah is the original oral Torah, so to speak, or what Jesus called the tradition of the elders, and it was put together um, around two hundred A.D. And it's the, uh, the basic Bible. Think of it as like a, a Bible is a Bible, and then a study Bible has all the extra study notes to it. So a study Bible might actually be twice as big if you've got a whole lot of commentary on the Bible, especially like where Jerusalem is and you know what they did with wine or whatever. So in this case, you've got the Mishnah, which is the heart of the whole thing, and then you've got the other part, which is the commentary. Now the Mishnah was done about 200 AD, again, from unbelieving Jews. The commentary on it, which makes up the Babylonian Talmud, the Mishnah and then the commentary, uh, it goes from being uh, basically one or two books to being close to 40 books. So the commentary is really crazy on that. Um, To compare myself, when I did the uh, Book of Gad the Seer, the actual text, if you just take the text of Gad the Seer in, in my kind of book, which is five and a half by eight and a half, it's about 40 pages. And then I added my commentary to it. Now it's 140 pages. So kind of like that, they we all tend to talk too much. But so this is from the Mishnah, so it's the older part. And again, the Mishnah is 200. The commentary is written between 400 and 800. So again, it's, it's it's centuries after the fact from people that don't believe in the Messiah. But still, it might have interesting things to it. So here's the requirements according to Para-Adoma 3. The red heifer must be without blemish, which means it can't have one hair that's either white or black. She can't have even one root of hair that's not red. It has to be absolutely perfect. And again, that would be almost impossible if you're trying one heifer at a time. But if you had a herd of red Angus, or red, Red, you know, the whole herd is red, a lot of them are gonna have blemishes, but surely one or two or three of them, if you have several hundred head of cattle, would be, would be able to be sacrificed. So not one hair, white or black, and not one that's red. I thought this was interesting too. Remember in the scriptures, uh, Jesus said, why do you swear by heaven, by earth, by this, by that? Why do you swear by your head? Because by your word you can't turn one hair white or black. wonder if that's got something to do with rituals or if he was hinting at the ritual. Um, she must be a red Angus that is red from one end to the other. Even the skin the nose and and the with skin on the nose and the skin around the eyes everything has to be perfectly red so again in a herd you should be able to find one or two of these she can't have had one blemish wart mole scratch or scar of any kind so if it falls down falls over gets a scratch it's not qualified and we can kind of see the reason for this it has to be an absolutely perfect Sacrifice. Now this is ritual, so it doesn't make a whole lot of difference, but it points to Messiah. The Messiah has to be an absolutely sinless, perfect sacrifice, uh, or we're not forgiven of our sins. So we understand Jesus is the Messiah. He's 100% God. He's 100% man. He lived a totally sinless life and died in our place, and that's why we have salvation. Uh, She can never have had a broken bone. Remember the prophecy in Psalms that talks about the Messiah. He feels his bones. Every single one of them seems like they're out of joint, the pain that he's going through. But the prophecy is that not one single bone would be broken. And normally when you're hanging on a cross and it's getting toward dusk time and they want to hurry up the death so they can get done with their shift. They'll just come along and break the legs because you get a kind of pneumonia, really hard to breathe. So if the guys come along and break the two legs, you won't be able to push yourself up and you'll suffocate pretty quickly after that. And so that's the standard. So you'd think, you know, Jesus being crucified, he'd have two bones broken. But the text says that the prophecy says not one bone would be broken. And sure enough, for whatever reason, instead of breaking his bones, they they, they see that he's dead or they think he's dead. So you could pass it on by, but to be on the safe side, the one uh, centurion takes the spear and pierces the side of Christ. And then we see outflowing blood and water, which again is an interesting point. Uh, but anyway, point being no bone was broken. And in this case with a red heifer, you can't have a, a bone that's ever been broken. Uh, No yoke, means plow, rope, or blanket can be placed upon it. No one can have ridden her because that means you're a beast of burden. You're doing normal, um, everyday mundane things. And this is supposed to be holy and set apart. So it can't have ever had a problem like that or done any work. Okay. Uh, She must be three years old, and that's by Jewish chronology um which basically starts at conception so they say 3 years old we would say 2 years old as far as the same kind of a deal and i know there it doesn't say it in here but it says something along the lines of uh uh there's a window i mean cuz you can't have it you know 10 years old uh or even if you could i mean most likely in 10 years there's going to be a scratch or a change in hair, hair color or something So you want it to be two years old and as quickly as possible before there's any kind of a blemish to be sacrificed. Okay, so she must be three years old, two by our standards. At two years old, the heifer would weigh about 1200 pounds. And this comes into play a little bit later. Most of you are saying like, "Mm, yeah, it's about like a two year old cow, but just remember that we'll come back to that, okay? So, when she is slaughtered, she must be outside the camp because the death, she's taking on the sin, right? It's a sin sacrifice, what it says in, or pertains to sin and ritual holiness according to Numbers 19. So, that's outside the camp. So, it has to be outside of Jerusalem. Jesus was crucified outside the city. So, a lot of parallels there. Um, in this case, she's to be slaughtered outside the city. But looking directly into the holy place, able to see the veil of the temple. Uh, So she must be directly east of the temple. So if this part is correct, again, this is why the place of slaughter is outside the city, outside the camp, which is over on the Mount of Olives, and at a certain place that's designed for it. So in this place, if you were looking straight east, you you should be able to look straight east, look into or over the the Eastern gate, and then up straight into the temple. And so the temple would be right there. We're looking straight East. And if the doors are open, I should be able to see, you know, and the lights right, I should be able to see all the way back into the middle of the temple, the veil. So again, this helps us understand where the temple would be because there has to be a direct line between where the temple sat over the Eastern Gate to some place on the Mount of Olives. So there's a little bit of give and take there, but it can't be way over somewhere else. Okay, and then the next part of it says the, the red heifer, can't touch anything that's unclean, like a bone or a grave. Now, you know there's a grave between the Eastern Gate and the Mount of Olives, and the heifer has to be taken out there and then the ashes and stuff has to be brought back so there was a special uh bridge that was designed for this so it the heifer would not be walking over the graves and possibly touch a bone or something impure so really interesting so again straight line special bridge So, um, okay, so a special bridge was uh, built for her to cross from the temple through the eastern gate over the Kidron Valley, which is also called the Valley of Death, uh, where the dead are buried, to the Mount of Olives, which is also called the Mountain of the Messiah, where a special mikvah or baptismal an altar was built specifically for her. Now, again, ritual cleansing for baptism and again i'd like to see the entire ritual for this so it would be really interesting i'm sure they just didn't walk over there cut its throat throw some stuff on it burn it up and then go home in a hurry i'm sure there was rituals scriptures that were quoted things like that okay the wood from the sacrifice is made up of cedar pine cypress and pieces of smooth fig wood I'm not sure why each piece, but that's the requirement from the Mishnah. Now, there have been nine red heifer sacrifices in the last 3,500 years. So they need one more. Some of the people have said they would need at least a little bit of the ashes of the last one to mix with this other one to make it holy. I don't know if that's correct or not if that's correct i can see the symbolism being the fact that it's an eternal sacrifice you know it basically started 3500 years ago and continues you just add more to it uh the next one will be the 10th red heifer sacrifice now the Talmud in other places says that the 10th and last heifer will be prepared by the messiah i think one And the there may be another one, but again, I don't think it's the Messiah doing it this time, because when Jesus comes back, you know, he may do some rituals like that, but we'll have to see. Um, whether it's true or not, it shows a belief that the 10th red heifer uh, is the, the total for all time. So we're ending uh, that ritual because those, rit- those uh, ashes can't go forever. So the 10th one, we can see the coming of the Messiah draws near. Now, there's several miracles that happen, So it's supposed to happen, when you're doing the ritual for the red heifer. Now, this is what I thought was really interesting. When the sacrifice begins, several miracles happen. And that shows that God is pleased with the sacrifice. Number one, only one priest will gently pick her up and lay her on the altar. Now, remember we said a minute ago, a two-year-old heifer is about 1,200 pounds. She can't have blemishes or be strange in any way, so it's, she can't be super skinny. Do you know very many priests or as single individuals, even weightlifters, that could pick up a 1,200-pound cow and gently set it on an altar? One person. That would be a miracle. There's no way a human could do that. But supposedly, it's what happens. Second miracles when she's burned, there will be no smell, no flies, no buzzards or vultures coming around because of the sacrifice. It's completely perfect in some way. Smoke will be white. Usually, white is not what comes up when you're barbecuing. So, that, that's kind of interesting. The smoke will be white and go straight up to God no matter which direction the breeze is blowing or how much of a breeze there was. So even if you got this major 10, 20, 30 mile an hour wind, the smoke just goes straight up. So those are the things supposed to happen uh, when you sacrifice a red heifer and it's pleasing to God. So then the priest will slit the ho- the throat of the red heifer, uh, catch the blood in a special container called a Mizdrak, it's that Um, I used to have a picture of it, but it's a a pointed thing. Basically you catch sacrificial blood and then you take it to sprinkle or whatever you do with that particular sacrifice. But it's pointed because you don't want to set it down and leave it. So they made the the vessel pointed to where you couldn't do that uh, because you have to hurry up before the blood coagulates. So then he sprinkles the blood seven times towards the temple. Uh, The carcass will be set afire. When it bursts open, the priest will take hyssop, cedar wood, uh, which is a type of redwood, uh, scarlet wool, and place them inside the opening of the heifer. When it's completely burned to ashes, another priest will collect the ashes with a special shovel created only for that purpose and then place the ashes in a special clay container. Uh, these ashes were then added to the Mayam Hayam, that's the living water, to create the water of purification. So there's the ritual for you for to, to take the living water, and that's from the spring. Uh, they have started recreating those rituals. So the, the ritual of the Mayam Hayam, for instance, um, and a couple of others, have not been actually done in 1,800 years. But over the last five or six years, you've been able to see them. If you go to the Temple Institute or their Facebook page, you can actually see some of these rituals going on. Now, they're calling them uh, practice sacrifices and practice rituals because there is no temple. So it doesn't really count, so to speak. But the fact that they it's not just that they have the priesthood back. They have all the vessels that they need to do. They're actually practicing the rituals. So not on the Temple Mount, of course, uh, but that will be sometime. So uh, the ashes are added to create the water purification, and they're put in jar, and that's that's what we saw in John chapter two. Jesus used some of these purification jars to turn the water to wine at the wedding. So again, there's 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 a direct connection there somehow. So uh, the red heifer sacrifice might give us a picture of the Messiah standing on the Mount of Olives when he returns, the mountain split in two, possibly creating a bridge so that he can cross over the temple. Uh, so that may or may not be the case. That was just my ideas. Uh, his, and then this is from Zechariah 14. His feet will stand on that day on the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley and half of the mountain shall move to the north and half to the to the west. So it's a really interesting thing. And that's probably connected with this too, uh, something that eventually happens. But I just wanted to share this with you. That's the, our, our teaching uh, on that. So we have it from Numbers chapter nine and it's connected with John chapter two. And then that's from the uh the mishnah which is the talmud the extra stuff so it'd be interesting for us to see if they do a sacrifice for the red heifer and if we're here to see that uh, and that takes place if one priest can pick it up if the white smoke appears only white and it goes straight up i mean you can look if, if it's being televised You can look around at the trees and other things, and you can tell if there's a wind or not, especially if there's a pretty good one. And then if that's going straight up, it'll be really interesting to kind of see. Um, Since they've rejected the Messiah, you know, I don't know that any of that would actually take place. So who knows? But I wanted to go over that because, again, some people have said, you know, what's the big deal with this? Well, the big deal is. It has to be two years old, and as quickly as you can after two years old, because it has to stay perfect. The longer you let it live, the more likely it's going to get corrupted somehow. So you can't just take one. The one of them that came from from the the herd, for instance, or however many came from Texas to to Israel, none of them would qualify because of their age, because of other stuff. But if you have a herd of red heifers then most likely any year when this actually starts, they would be able to find a perfect red heifer, heifer and do the sacrifice. So all of this simply means we're not quite there yet, but we're getting closer. Every time we turn around, something's happened to make us a little bit closer to the way the prophecies share. So at this point, I will go to the chat room and just see what kind of questions we might have on this. Uh, first question is, move this to here just a little bit. Do they dress out the heifer or leave everything inside? According to that, they leave everything inside, and then when they ha- when it, it should split open somewhere around the line, because of the the barbecuing, and that's when they put the hyssop and the the cedar and the other things in it. Uh, I read heifers are genetically modified to do it man's way. Would the sacrifices of these be abomination? Yeah, possibly. I hadn't heard anything like that. Uh, Generally, anything that's genetically modified would be uh, forbidden in scripture. The whole concept, Uh, anciently, we would call that Nephilim technology. The whole idea of trying to mix species or change the genetic code is something that God forbid. So if they did that, then yeah, I can see that being an abomination. Yeah, so Jesus, Jesus is, you know, the perfect, Where the red heifer is the picture of the Messiah. So it's a picture of what Jesus did. If they sacrifice the red heifer now, I doubt those miracles would occur because the true red heifers already died. What would the priests do? I don't know. It's interesting to, I don't know if they'd say, well, it's not acceptable. We'll have to do it again, or I don't know what they would do. See, the priests we have now, I don't know that they're actual Zadok priests. And even if they are, or even if they're not, um, I don't think they accept the Messiah. So the whole problem with that, you see that according to the scrolls throughout all of the Old Testament, is that the times when Israel accepted the Messiah and believed in the Messiah, like we do, then they were walking in God's grace, and they were symbolized as a fig, as a uh, olive tree. The times that they walk in apostasy, they're uh, symbolized as a fig tree. So it's really interesting to see all those things. So yeah, if you have a priesthood that's not doing it right, it wouldn't be acceptable. And we've already had our Messiah anyway. So it's an interesting thing. But we're not saying that god wants the temple rebuilt now there's just a prophecy that the jews will build the re-temple now or sometime if that makes sense Uh, there's a prophecy that the jews come back into israel maybe that's god's will maybe it's not the concept of a prophecy is just telling you what's going to happen whether that's good or bad so if it's prophesied to happen it will happen so there will be a temple They most likely will follow the Talmudic law, which means there will be a red heifer of some sight, some sort. The main thing we want to take away from it is what the red heifer symbolizes and see how it points back to Christ. Uh, If the Messiah is to be one who sacrifices the 10th red heifer, could that possibly be the false Messiah who the Jews will accept? Uh, Very possible. I don't know if Jesus would actually do that when he comes back because it's a different age. Uh, maybe, maybe not. But I can definitely see a, uh, a false messiah doing something like this. Matter of fact, remember it said that the, um, maybe it's the false prophet, but either way, antichrist or false prophet calls fire down in the sight of men instead of calling fire down to destroy men or commanding a nuclear strike or something like that, what if he commands fire to come down and it consumes a red heifer? It's kind of interesting. Something like that's gonna happen. So it would be interesting to see, although I don't really wanna be here when the Antichrist is here. That's a good question. All these things kind of come to light. That's why I think it's good to study these things a little bit and to see even if this is totally wrong, if that's what the Jews are expecting, then that might be what happens. And so, you know, just to see things from all sorts of different angles. Does the temple have to be built first so that it can be consecrated following the ritual, or does the ritual consecrate the site to allow the temple to be built? I don't know for sure, that's a good question. I would assume that they would have to have a red heifer to uh, do the water purification to do the temple. So I would assume that would be first. Um, the question, I guess, at that point would be do we have anywhere any of the ashes of the old heifer? You know, it'd be 2000 years old or, or thereabouts, but sealed in a jar, maybe. So could you use just a little bit of that to make purification water to dedicate the temple then bring that use the temple and its purity to make a red heifer sacrifice so maybe it's both it's hard to tell though but i would assume if we don't have anything from the last heifer that it would have to be um the heifer first and then the temple that'd be my guess I heard that there were flown in, they were flown in on a Boeing 777, okay. Uh, Is this true and does it have a significance? Um, I don't know. I hadn't heard that, but that's, yeah, I don't know for sure. Uh, Is the third temple that will be built the same as the one Ezekiel saw in the vision? Probably not, that's the millennial temple that he sees. Uh, So if they build a temple or have a tabernacle or whatever they do uh, on the temple mount, it says that the temple would be rebuilt. So I'm assuming it's a temple and the Antichrist desecrates it. Uh, The one that's mentioned in Ezekiel is this extremely large complex and it's talked about as being the millennial temple. So that, that would be the fourth one. Did anyone hear about Israel? Uh, oh, train line from the airport to the Temple Western Wall that will be completed prior to Passover of next year. I hadn't heard about it. I need to keep up on those things anyway. A good person that would be uh, a good to keep up on that kind of stuff would be Amir. Um, with that in mind, let me open this up. Uh, telegram is one of the few things that is um somewhat censorship resistant anyway and right now they're saying they don't care you know what you say uh well to a point you know but anyway here's uh uh, like our biblefacts.org is when i post stuff it's a channel and then there's a communications thing with it so we can talk about stuff uh and then i've got stuff for our tuesday night bible study and those Mm -hmm. things But I've also got uh, Amir Safardi, his channel, and he's always got um, lots and lots of good information. I usually get beeped five or ten times a day, it seems like. Uh, There's lots of information, but he would be a good person to follow on that, too. You can also follow us also. um, And actually, to get here, if we go to BibleFacts.org and just go down to telegram that should actually open you up to to there and that's the stuff that we post and then of course you can you can open it up in telegram and be able to do lots of other stuff so um so i hadn't heard of that though and then our last question is uh that when the antichrist appears when they start to sacrifice at the new temple um, I don't know. Uh, most of us think that the construction of the temple is part of the peace plan, which is the one that the Antichrist does. So that would be, if that's the case, the Antichrist would appear, uh, create a peace plan, the seven year covenant, and start on that. And then they would have permission to build the temple. Then they would build it, start the sacrifices. And in the middle of that seven year period, the sacrifices would be stopped by him. Um, that's the way most of us see it. I don't know if that's absolutely correct or not. Because uh, right now they would like to build a temple, but the Sanhedrin and the people that run it—the the basic idea is that they have to be given the Temple Mount by the person or the the, the government that controls it. Right now, it's disputed. So politically. There has to be a time, I don't know if you pay money or or conquer the other people or whatever, but when all the nations around there agree that Israel owns the Temple Mount and it's their sovereign place, then if the nation of Israel, the government, says we're going to hand the running of the Temple Mount over to the priests, then the priests would go ahead and build the temple and start sacrificing so that's kind of what they're waiting on it's a political problem keeping them all back uh so and that's that's interesting if you think about it it, ha- it takes a war of some sort um or politics to change and we understand in the near future we're going to have the destruction of damascus is given in isaiah 17. the destruction destruction of uh, iran is given in jeremiah 49. um the Psalm 83 war, there's several other things actually. Um, Israel taking the the Southern Lebanon, which is part of the Obadiah and Zephaniah prophecies. So there's a lot of prophecies that happen, um, but that um, happens sometimes. So we're not sure exactly what it goes. If all of those happen, say like in the next year or two, and then Israel becomes a superpower, which some people think will happen. Uh, then we could have a time when they are in total control, build their temple, start their stuff, and then maybe later on we have a seven-year tribulation. So it could actually come either way. One more popped up. Uh, when did you say was the first day of the last jubilee period? Um, let's look it up real quick. Okay, here. Um, let's see. Where's the easiest way to do this? Okay, on the studies. And we are in the 12th ona, getting ready to start the millennial reign, the last two. And so you can come here, what, what, what I'm doing here is, they divide all of time into 14 onas or 500 year periods. And a 500 year period or an ona is made up of 10 Jubilees. And what we have is Shemitahs, and you can see this here, S1 to S7 are the seven Shemitahs, there's seven sets of seven years. So between here to here is 49 years. Then there's a Jubilee year outside of that set. Then after that starts the Jubilee or the shemitah counts again and then Jubilee. So two Jubilees, 100 years a century, not 98 years. The Book of Jubilees says that it's 98 years, but it's an Ethiopic version and the numbering system is off. And if you study the numbering system in there, it's, it's quite easy to tell there's something wrong um The Dead Sea Scroll version of Jubilees, which we don't have much of, but we do have a couple places where the numbers are given, and the numbers are different from the Ethiopic, and they agree with Genesis. So, it's it's pretty straightforward. There's enough evidence to kind of recalculate this. So, anyway, here is the twelfth una, which would be from a 500 year period from 1576, all the way down to. My stuff up here, the year 6000, which is the end of the 10th Jubilee of that 500 year period, which is 2075. So, right now we have the last Shemitah is between 2018 and 2024. And this is going March to March. So, uh, 2025, which is March of 2025 to March of 2026 is the Jubilee year. So that'd be the ninth Jubilee. Then it starts the final Jubilee period, which it starts with the first year of the first Shemitah of that 50 year period. So that first year is going to be um, March of 26, and then going forward. So the Jubilee years in 25, March of 25 to March of 26. So these are all starting dates. So, and so the 10th Jubilee begins in 75 and ends in 76. So 2076, March of that year would begin the year 6,001 if we have these correct. And it, sh- it, sh- it seems to look pretty accurate. If we back up to here, this, uh, just the, the DSS calendar, if you go under ONA studies, which is right here, um, this shows you how their calendar works and tells you about the ages, uh, the weekly Sabbath, the 14 on cycles. And they're explained, uh, the Jubilee year, the Shemitahs, and the years with the Jubilee cycle. And then down at the bottom, these are major dates or specific dates, uh, from creation to the flood, the birth of Abraham, Exodus, things like that. The ones that were dated as being large amounts of time from here to here, And they all have a date in the spring. Uh, So there's no extra year or six months or anything like that. We know it's exactly so many years from here to here. And that gets us up to uh, Solomon's temple so we can calculate Messiah's death. So this whole thing should be give or take a year from the year one to the year 6,000. So the explanation is here. So we try to do pretty good on this uh, as far as that goes okay we'll go ahead and stop there um and we will let's see um as far as stuff going we will be at calvary chapel maranatha which is in bellevue um, um, nebraska you know bellevue nebraska uh they have a conference uh thursday friday and saturday and then we're going to stay up there, and Sunday morning we're going to go over to the Calvary Chapel in Lincoln, Nebraska, just to do a Sunday morning service, and then we'll be back. So we should be back for another Monday night without a problem. So, but just to let you know if you're interested in in, uh, those things, where we'll be. So we'll go ahead and say good night, and uh, God bless you guys, and we will see you uh, next Monday.